Now, in Romans chapter 2, one of the first things Paul did was to confront the Jewish people in the church, the Jewish believers in the congregation. Verse 1, you, that would be the Jewish people, therefore have no excuse. You, Jewish people, who pass judgment on someone else. Now, if you have a pen and your own Bible, only your own Bible, if you borrow somebody else's Bible, don't write on their Bible. For whatever point, you underline this, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Why? Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a, he- a mere human being, pass judgment on them, yet you do the same things, do you think you escape God's judgment? What Paul is saying about the same thing as this is that the Jewish people, they insisted that the people who become believer Christians ought to have circumcision because it's part of the law. They're saying if you don't have circumcision, you are violating the law and therefore you are not qualified to be a Christian. And yet, Paul the Apostle said you may be observing one part of the law, but you're violating other parts of the law. You are doing the same things. You are no better than all the Gentiles. You see, whenever we have a certain truth about anything... If we don't practice them, it is useless. They may have the truth of some part of the law, but they couldn't practice all of them. It's impossible. So it's as good as they don't practice them at all. And Paul's saying, you, those those things that you practice, like circumcision, they're not good enough. They're not good for you. And Paul was saying that these Jewish believers who taught, who thought, who thought to themselves that if they teach people about the law, they would be okay even if they had vi- they were violating some other parts of the law. And Paul is saying, no, that's not okay. It's no good. In fact, if you're teachers of the law and that you're violating other parts of the law and you're teaching some about the law, it's actually worse. In fact, James even go one step further in James chapter 3 verse 1. He said that not many of you should presume to be teachers. My brothers, because you know that those who will teach, who teach, will be judged more strictly. Guys like me, we will be judged more strictly because we are the teachers of the Word of God. And so don't think that if you're teachers of the Word of God, you're some kind of teachers of the law, God, heaven is going to give a bit of a wink, wink and say, okay, since you kind of like, you know, teach the law, that's okay. Paul's saying, no. In fact, if you choose to be a teacher, you'll be judged more strictly. So don't think that you're teaching the law and you yourself can escape uh, the punishment or the judgment. The Jews who knew the law and tried to teach others about some of the laws, not all the law, but some of the laws, especially circumcision, Sabbath, etc., yet could not themselves practice all of them because nobody ever could. They are in no better shape or in better standing than the people they want to judge. Or they were judging. Their standing is as though, as those who violated all the laws and commands of God. You see, the way that God in the, in the Old Testament dealt with people without the grace, without the blood of Jesus, is very 
binary. In other words, you could be observing 99.9% of all the laws and you violate one of them, it would be as though you have violated all of them. Say, for example, you know, you, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, you got tithes, you got to observe Sabbath, you got to honor your parents, you cannot murder people, then commit fornication, adultery, etc., etc. Say you kept all of them except one day somebody walk up to you and you try to be nice, you have a bit of white lies. Oh, you look so nice, but inside you go ugly. You are as bad, the Bible says, as the one who just murdered somebody. It's very binary. So if you want to observe the law, you better observe all of them. Otherwise, you're as good as the ones who committed adultery, murder, etc., etc. Furthermore, because they use what they know to judge others, they also brought condemnation unto their own conscience as well. Back to verse 1. Chapter 2, the part that I asked you to underline, if I haven't asked you because I forgot, I don't, can't remember which, which service I asked you to underline. Okay, this one, this part. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Do you realize that when you judge other people, you are bringing condemnation onto your own conscience? And that's why a lot of religious people Often feel super guilty, so they have to work harder because they feel condemned and judged. Why? Because they condemn others. And furthermore, to make them feel better, they always want to put other people down. Nobody's ever good enough for them. And so, they, you know, that's a saying, right? You cannot snuff out somebody else's candle so to make your candle brighter. Or your candle will not get any brighter by snuffing out, snuffing out somebody else's candle. But that's what all these religious people are trying to do is that by putting other people down, they thought they can feel better about themselves. But the problem is that the more you judge people, the more condemned you feel. That's a spiritual reality. Have you met some of those older religious people? They're always very mad. Have you met those? It's never good enough for them. <laughs> They're always very mad. You seem too loud. <laughs> You're not giving enough, you know. I don't like the way you dress. You're not holy enough. Look at the way you dress. You know, just a little thing. They'll nitpick on little things. Why? Because they're feeling awfully condemned and judged. And so they keep on doing it. It's a deathly cycle. So the more you do it, the worse you get. And that's not the life that God has called us to. He's called us to a life of joy. He's called us to a life of free of condemnation. The Bible says there is therefore now no what? Come on, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit that's in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. So condemnation is not from God. And many believers know that, they realize that, and yet because they judge other people, they feel awfully con condemned. You know, not too long ago, there was a, when, they, when we started preaching this message of the grace of God, you know, the people that were in the opposition of this message, one fellow, you know, he came to my office, you know, he's feeling very, very shameful. You know, he's like, um, 
He's like, oh, you know, pastor, I feel really guilty. And, you know, some of the things that he had done in the past, you know, and, and some of the things that he's still struggling with. He said he felt very guilty, you know. You know, people always want to tell preachers about that because they think it's like, you know, in the old Catholic days, you know, you go in a confession booth and just, you know. I mean, scientifically, they told us that it's, it's quite therapeutic to confess your sin. And that's why a lot of people kind of coming out of the closet or confess to sin because they feel very proud, you know. Confession is very therapeutic. So he came to the office, you know, he, he tried to confess. And I, and I said to him, I said, then why then, brother, are you judging other people and that you don't like this message of grace? He said, I'm not judging people. I just think they're doing wrong. And I said, do you let them know? He said, yeah, I got to tell them the truth. You know, I, just, I, got, I got to preach the truth and tell them the truth. In other words, he's kind of judging people, trying to put people down. And the more he did it, the more guilty he felt. I said, you know, the only way that you're going to be lifted from this condemnation in your spirit, in your conscience, is stop judging other people. Are you here? Don't judge people. You know, a lot of people say, you know, pastor, but you know, I, I just need to preach the word so that they can be convicted to do the right thing. In the Christendom, there's a great confusion between condemnation and conviction. People always equate condemnation to conviction. So they put people down and people feel terrible and they say, oh, because they're convicted. They're not convicted by the Holy Spirit. They're convicted by your words. The way Holy Spirit convict people is not so that they feel awful about themselves. You say, how did, how did the Holy Spirit convict them? I will show you. Verse 4. Do you show contempt? For the riches of the kindness of God, forbearance and patience of God, not realizing that it is God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. Now, those Jewish believers who were violating the law in many areas of their lives while condemning others specifically for not circumcising, felt that they were on the right track, they were okay because everything was fine, God was not punishing them in any way. But Paul is warning them, hey, the reason you're not receiving a due punishment, it's not because you're on the right track. The reason that you have not felt any judgment from God is not because you're on the right track. It is because of the goodness of God that is on you. Don't mistake, Paul says, the goodness of God with, with the fact that you are not on the right track. Don't, don't confuse with that. Because it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. Listen. This is the message of this house. Is that it is God's kindness. Everybody say God's kindness. It is God's kindness that lead us to repentance, not condemnation and judgment. If anybody ever come to you, whether they're from this church or any other place, ever utter any ideas that make you feel condemned, you can reject them in Jesus' name. Because it's the kindness of God, it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance, not condemnation, not judgment. So I know sometimes we believe, what pastors, you know, want to preach something that make, you feel, feel, make people feel a bit condemned so that we can kind of coerce their behavior, modify the behavior. That is not the gospel we preach. The gospel we preach is supernatural. It is through the kindness of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that we live in a life that He had called us to live in. Not judgment, condemnation, and guilt, feeling guilty all the time. Now in verse 5 to 16, Paul the Apostle spoke of God's fairness in dealing with sin when he comes, when he returns, the second coming. Both to the Jews and the non-Jews. 
whether they know the law or do not know, they, they, they do not know, they do not know the law. God's fairness is that it doesn't matter what you know. Verse 11, God does not show favoritism. Everybody say, God does not show favoritism. He doesn't show favoritism to one person over the other. One group over another, one person who knows more of the law over those that didn't know the law or ignorant of the law. He doesn't show up any favoritism if you have observed all the traditions of, of your religion background or your denomination versus the one that absolutely have no idea what those traditions and religious rigmaroles are. He doesn't show any favoritism one over the other. The point is this, having just a head knowledge Practicing some rules outwardly is kind of useless. Having just a head knowledge of the law without fully understanding and fully have the revelation and fully live in them, but just live partially is useless. On the other hand, even without knowing the law, you may not know the whole 613 of the laws, 10 commandments and all the other laws that was introduced in the wilderness, even without knowing the law, if a person is truly born again, they would naturally live according to the will of God. Why? Check this out in verse 14, chapter 2. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are law, a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and sometimes defending them. In other words, knowing the law is absolutely unnecessary, Paul says. Because if you're born again, you will have the Holy Spirit in your heart leading you to make the right decision and do the right thing. You may not know anything, but if you're truly born again, the Spirit of God has been prophesied by Jesus Himself. In that day, He will show you everything and teach you everything of me and give it to you. And the Word of God also prophesied that He will write His law upon our hearts. Not heart of stone, but heart of flesh. That's how God wants to operate. Not just memorizing the law and remembering them and just observing one or two of them, but really allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you and effortlessly live out this amazing life God has called us to without having to feel condemned and guilty. Now from verse 17 to 29, Paul again is addressing those Jewish believers who insisted that the Gentiles must get circumcised. Now interestingly enough, circumcision was all they cared about. They're like, if you want to become believers, the price to pay is to get cut. Otherwise, you're not worthy to be a Christian. But everything else they're okay with. Some of them were cheating the taxes. Some of them were committing all kinds of different sins against the, the Word of God. But they were all right. Like today, if you notice, in many of our churches, many people will preach very loudly against one sin over the other. Or even one specific ruse of their brand of Christianity but they're okay with other sins and other, other follies, as it were. You know, God does not hate sinners. Contrary to what you've been told. 
You can't find it in the Bible. God hates sinners. After Jesus came, he loves sinners. He hates the sin that plagued them. But he loves sinners. And so as a church, we need to condition our psyche to love sinners so that God can change them. God can, in his grace, transform them. And so, you know, a lot of us, our churches, I know they're very sincere. You know, we preach one sin. We focus on one sin, especially for churches, is sexual sin, sexual immorality. You know, whether it's homosexual, heterosexual, whatever, just we just focus on sin. You know, our church, churches now have been known as anti-something. We are an anti-agent. We anti-this, anti-that. Now, God hates all the sin, but while they're preaching against one sin, they don't mention about the fact that their people in the church are gossiping, having envy, jealousy, and not telling the truth and just lie to each other. They're okay with those sins. They can tolerate that, but they somehow can't tolerate one sin. There's a joke in the 80s that it would be okay if you kill somebody and send to jail and repent. And when you come out of jail, you can still be great preachers. But if you're a preacher, you commit adultery, it's over for you. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying it's okay to commit adultery. Because it will be over for them too. The fact is that you, I mean, you compromise, you will suffer the consequences of sin. But the grace of God is still available for you to start all over again, start fresh again. And God doesn't respect one person or another or have one emphasis of uh, uh, focus on one sin over the other or emphasize one sin over the other. When a person lie, as far as God is concerned, is as bad as a person killing somebody. I'm not trying to belittle murder, but the point is this, sin is sin. So when we want to preach about sin, we got to talk about all of them not just focus on one thing but the church we have focus on one thing just one thing or two things we become the anti-agent and we become very very political friends I want to tell you this if you want to preach the gospel preach the kindness of God the goodness of God it is up to the Holy Spirit and I trust that he will change and transform people's lives from inside out can I hear an amen, amen. hallelujah so so anyways back to circumcision in fact Paul insisted that physical circumcision is actually quite useless why? Verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. The circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So the question then is this, if circumcision is not that important and the law is not that important, why then did God insist that they observe the law and get circumcised. Now, in chapter 3, if you pay attention to chapter 3, it would seem, and it's a big word there, seem. Seem, okay? Not the truth, but it would seem. It would seem like Paul is implying that, that, um, uh, that circumcision and the law were there so that right and wrong can be clearly distinguished. And that he would also imply that God allows sin or even make people to sin or allow darkness to exist so that light could be shine brighter. In other words, it would seem that God would either allow it or purposefully make people sin so that he can shine his brightness and his law on us. If that is the case, he cannot judge anyone. How can he judge anyone? And, and, and so the word is seems. And that's why Paul says that there were some that would accuse him and his company to encourage sin. 
so that God's righteousness can be further revealed. Chapter 3, verse 78, 7 to 8. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as sinners? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Paul is saying, these people deserve to be condemned. Because that's not what he was preaching. In fact, with this argument in Romans chapter 5 verse 20, they say sins abound. Where sins about grace is much, much more abound. With these two scriptures that we preach, we have been, me, I have been personally accused of preaching permissive theology. Preaching the fact that God is okay with sin. God is okay for us to indulge in sin. And it's accusing people like me who preach the goodness of God. And he's preaching this greasy grace, you know, allow people to sin all they want. Paul here insists these people accuse them of, 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 of this lie. They, they deserve to be condemned. That's pretty heavy. The point here is not whether God had made sin darker to show His righteousness. That's not the point. The point here is no one, whether you are a fervent law-abiding religious person or sinners with all the flaws, no one, no one is considered righteous. In verse 22 to 23, he said, there is really no difference in the eyes of God whether you're religious or sinful. Because why? Everybody, for all, everybody say all. Come on, everybody say all. All have come and sin, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even though you're super religious, you have sinned at some point, so you still fall short. You can never make good of that. It doesn't matter how good you do for the rest of your life. Who is going to pay for those Sins that you've committed, your goodness does not. It's like you know somebody, you know some some mafia, you know murdered, you know hundreds of people, and then from 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 you know age fifty onward to become really good and do charity and so forth. Does that mean that all the people, all the victim that he had killed, it'd be okay? No, it, it's useless. Verse twenty. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. By the works of law, including circumcision. Rather, through the law, we may become conscious of our sin. Now, this is a question that we ask. How then can we be righteous before God and therefore have a direct relationship with Him and enjoy all the goodness and blessings from God from now to eternity? If law is not necessary, if observing law is as useless... As, as anything else, why, how do we become righteous? You say, why do I need to be righteous? Well, the reason you want to be righteous, the reason God wants you to be righteous is because He wants to have you to have a con direct relationship with Him, directly connect to Him. You can hear His voice, talk to Him, walk with Him, not just some, some, some kind of fairy tales in your head, but you truly can experience the reality of God and His presence is with you all day long. It's not your psychological brainwash thinking that you're doing the right thing, but that you can absolutely experience the reality of God, experience healing, experience His power, experience His mercy, experience His goodness. And that's the reason why you want to be righteous before God. But if observing religious rules is not the way to go, then how do we get there? 
verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Everybody say, apart from the law. If that's your Bible, underline it. Apart from the law has been made known. Righteousness has been made known apart from the law, to which the law and the prophets even testify. In other words, God has now provided a new way for us to have, if, in fact, it's not even a new way, I'll t- tell you why. A way for us to have right standing with Him, to be righteous before Him without the law. This way is apart from the law, outside the law of Moses. That's why, that's, this is the new way. Now from chapter 3, verse 22 to chapter 4, Paul shows us the only way to God's righteousness. The only way. So in other words, all the 613 commands, if you don't know any of them, don't worry about it. Don't even bother to research it. You can use the time to love God, love people, go have a good meal. Three people agree, what, the rest of you want to observe the law? Like, In other words, you can now be righteous without observing one iota of the law. Now, if you you, you believe that, come on, let's rejoice before the Lord. You know, and then I guess the rest of us who didn't want to rejoice, you want to observe the law, I will introduce you to a synagogue. You can go ahead and go there. Or any other religious body in this country. That insists on observing rules. There's no way. As far as God is concerned, you can ever come to your own righteousness. The only way to God's righteousness is spelled, it is F-A-I-T-H. Everybody says faith. Everybody say faith. The only way you can have the full righteousness of God, have absolute amazing right standing with God as though you are His friend. You can be like Moses, I'm the friend of God. The only way is not for you to observe rules and regulations. It is for you to have faith. And for the rest of the chapter 4, he'd explain what faith is. But before we get there, let's look at verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in most Bible, there's a comma there. And then are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So if there's a comma there, it actually sounds quite different. But in the old, in the original manuscript, 23 and 24, in fact, there's no verses and chapters in the original manuscript. It's just people add them in, right? And so whoever is translating it, they just add them in. Right? But the original translation is just one thought, one line. 23 and 24, it's just one unstopped train of thoughts. Here we go. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and justified freely by His grace. We've all sinned, but we are justified. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God and justified freely by what? By what? The grace through the redemption that came by Christ. To understand that, you must have faith. Verse 28, we maintain that a person is justified by faith. Through grace, right? Apart from the works of the law. Apart, 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 outside. 
In fact, even before Christ, righteousness was also able to be obtained through faith. In chapter 4, Paul laid out his argument and his proof. He used Abraham as a solid example because the Jews were very respective of Abraham. And Abraham is the father of many nations, Ishmael and Israel. He's the father of all nations. Oh, many nations, sorry, not all nations, many nations. And so Paul used Abraham in verse 2, chapter 4. Paul quoted Moses in Genesis 15, 5, saying, Abraham believed in God and was credited to him as righteous. Abraham believed in God and was credited to him as righteous. In other words, it was Abraham's faith that made him righteous. Not his works. Furthermore, do you realize that there was no law at the time of Abraham? In fact, the law was not even introduced until several hundred years after the time of Abraham. And people say, well, how, how about circumcision? He's circumcised. The only reason he circumcised was after he was made righteous. He agreed to a covenant of land. That's why he circumcised. But it does not make you any righteous when you circumcise. So circumcision did not make Abraham righteous either. Furthermore, even before he was circumcised, God already blessed him with incredible promise without observing one iota of the law. You see, but all the time I, I've, I've observed all this law and, you know, you, you mean they're a waste? Well, let me ask you a question. How's it working out for you? Are you here? Some of you like sitting and looking at me, what kind of religion you're preaching? I'm preaching the Christian faith. I'm not even preaching religion. I'm preaching Christian faith, your faith in Christ Jesus. He was blessed with incredible promises and blessing without observing even one law. Not only him, but all his offsprings. Offspring of faith included. That would be us. Verse 13 and 14. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. It's very interesting. I didn't say this in the first service, but you get the bonus of this. The heir of the world. Everybody say heir of the world. He didn't say heir of heaven. Yes, in Christ, we join heir with Jesus, which means we also have all the inheritance in heaven. But here, he's also talking about heir of the world. Isn't that great? You and I are supposed to enjoy all the creation of God in this world. Are you here this morning? Three people. The rest of you are doubtful. I don't know. I don't know because I'm not enjoying it. Well, I'm going to show you how you can enjoy it. You want to know? Okay, three people again. What, why the rest of you came? Like, what is this? You know? <laughs> if you don't want to know, right? I know most of us just don't like the response. I am like that too. I go to another church and visit them, you know, and the preacher said, everybody say this. I go, all right, I'm going to say it. I know because it takes work. But you know, we're here to, to, to help each other, right? I'm not here just to entertain you. I'm here this morning. Amen. Praise God. Now, 
Now, where else I have? Um, uh, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise, verse 14 and, uh, 13 and 14, that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So it's not observing religious, religious rules that are going to please God and that are going to get you the things you want. That is not going to work. What's going to work is that you, through, uh, through your faith in God, through righteousness that comes from faith. Everybody say righteousness that comes by faith. Say it again. Righteousness that comes by faith. Only through that. For though, if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. In other words, either faith or no faith. You cannot have a mixture of faith. Oh, I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to just keep the law just in case it doesn't work. Then you're fooling yourself. It will not work. You pick one today. You want the law or you want faith? You pick one right now. Which one do you pick? Amen. I guess the less of us just going to keep the law. Praise God. God loves you anyways because I just love you. But I'm, I, seriously, pick one over the other. I encourage you to pick faith. Verse 16. This is the key. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. So that it may be by grace. Faith by grace. The promise come by faith so that it may be by grace. So if you don't know of faith, you don't know how faith works, you can never understand grace. And may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. All of them. Not only those who are of the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Now for the rest of the chapter... Paul explains to us the true definition of faith that brings righteousness, right standing with God. And not only that, will bring all the promises of God that you've received over the years from the Word of God to come to pass. That is the only way. By observing rules and laws, it's not going to make it any better for you. So don't even bother. That's my encouragement. Aren't you glad? Let's call it the summer without the law. Woohoo! Praise God. <laughs> Some people say, oh, pastor, be careful, be careful. I'm telling the truth. I'm preaching the word, aren't I? Did I make this up? Did your Bible say the same thing? Some of you say, I didn't bring my Bible. Well, bring them next week. Then you can prove whether or not I'm telling the truth. I'm telling the truth. This is how faith works. Chapter 4, verse 18. And we're going to conclude with this. Okay. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so become the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was good as dead, as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. That Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened by his, in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God was will credit righteousness. For us who believe, believe what? In him. 
who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Your faith in believing that Jesus died for you and raised to life for your justification. So for the rest of the chapter, he basically talked about how faith works. Now, if you want to summarize what we read, this is true faith. You ready? You know, a lot of people have tried to teach us what faith is, right? This is true faith. It's going to shock you, at least some of you. True faith is not praying and then see your prayer answer. That's easy. You don't need faith for that. Because a lot of people in Jesus' days didn't even ask for Jesus and they have the prayer answer. You remember that? Did Lazarus ask to be raised from the dead? Come on, talk to me. Did he? But he was raised from the dead. Did Mary and Martha ask Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead? No. You know, a lot of times when I was growing up, I hear all these amazing preachers, I, I give credit to them, praise God, you know, that they have to pray answer, miracles after miracles. And then I look at myself, I go, something is wrong with me because my prayer is not being answered. Look at my situation. It's as dark as ever. Right? I was poor as ever. Sick as ever, Shandai, you know. I thought something was wrong with me. But this morning, I want to introduce to you what true faith is. And that faith is going to do amazing things for you. The key is in verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Stop right there. Do you know what true faith is? You pray and nothing happened. You still believe. Are you here this morning? You pray and nothing happened, you still believe. That is true faith. You know, praise God for prayer answer. We want, of course, our prayer to be answered. We, you know, Bible teaches all different ways to see our prayer being answered. But true faith, ladies and gentlemen, is to pray and see nothing of that ever happen. You know, Abraham and Sarah, they will promise, they will promise to become the father of many nations. And then they reached the senior age. By the time they got to the senior age, nothing happened. And so they, 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 they used their own rationale, you know. They told, uh, Abraham told, told uh, sorry, Sarah told Abraham, you know, go sleep with my maid. And Abraham go, woohoo, glad too, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And so he did, right? And you know, God blessed that anyways. He blessed Ishmael. Ishmael is blessed. Don't kid yourself. You know, God's promise, uh, uh, Hagar, thank you, promised that Ishmael, out of Ishmael will rise 12 nations. I mean, when God says, I'll bless your descendants, I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, it includes Ishmael. Hello, are you here? You're so quiet, come on. Talk to me. Right? You know, against all, so, but, but you know, but Abraham, even though he tried his own way, and we always try our own ways, don't feel guilty and condemned because God's grace is sufficient for you. Even though he tried his own way and didn't work, God said to him, all right, I'm going to show you my grace. I'm going to show you my grace. And yet nothing happened. So Sarah now is 99 years old. I don't know about you, but some of you, female, understand this concept. I don't think you appreciate giving birth when you're 99. See, guys don't understand, right? We're like, oh, ooh. we fainted just looking at blood, you know. But you know, when we get one, we, 
not me, sorry. When my wife gave birth, it was like, with all the energy you had. Hello, any, any mother here? Can I hear an amen? Come on, come on. You know, I, I empathize, right? It's like, they, taste, they say it's a pain that you have never felt before. You know, these days they're lucky. They got epidural. You know, God bless you. When Matthew was born, <coughs> the epidural came too late. Matthew already popped out. He couldn't wait to come out. <laughs> so, so my wife had to go through the real pain. <laughs> She's like screaming. I've never heard her scream like that. <laughs> you know? And it's, it's, it's already hard when you're in your 20s, 30s, and 40s. Can you imagine doing that at 99 with no epidural or C-section? Ladies, are you here? Come talk to me. It's hard. If I was Sarah, I would say, no, thank you, Lord. <laughs> you know? Ishmael would be fine. You know? <laughs> but you know, here, Abraham, his, his wife Sarah, the Bible says her womb is as good as dead. Like nothing's going to happen. Against all hope, that's faith. They still believe. How do they show their faith? Hope against all hope. Listen to this. Hope against all hope. He still praised God. He still worshiped God. And giving God all the glory. Right, verse 20. Yet did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise in spite of the circumstance that suggests otherwise, contrary to what he believed, but was strengthened in his faith. How? And by giving glory to God. This is how faith works. Faith, true faith, is to continue to give praise to God with all that you have, even when what you're believing in God for doesn't seem to be coming to pass. That's true faith. It's easy to believe in God every time when you pray, things come to pass, yeah? Because that's really not faith. True faith is to believe and praise God. Even what you believe for would seem like it's not going to come to pass. Worship team, can you come? I'll tell you a story. I mentioned this story before in the past. Now, this is the, this story about how we can have the faith to be righteous before God. Okay? We talk about righteousness before God, not with law, but righteousness with faith by grace. Now, I shared this story before. There was this, there was this preacher, you know, it's, it's singing evangelist, you know. Some of you haven't heard it before, it's just so for, you know, just use it as a reminder. But some of you have heard, uh, uh, have heard it, use it as a reminder. If you haven't heard it, you know, this is a brand new story for you, good for you. So what happened is in the, I think, I believe it was in the 60s and 70s, there was this traveling, singing evangelist, you know. He was diagnosed with uh, TB. You know what TB is, right? Some of the younger ones are like, what is that? Is that, is that an app? <laughs> you know, <laughs> is it an iPhone an app? No, no, no. TB is uh, uh, it's a lung disease that is terminal and at the time at least, you know. And so he was diagnosed with that. And when he found out about it, he was still traveling and preaching and singing. And everywhere he would go, he would tell people to pray for him. Please pray for me. He said, I must have asked tens of thousands of people pray for me over the course of the few years that he was able to travel. And soon after he started to become weak and nothing happened. 
And he became so weak that he, they couldn't live independently anymore. So the in-laws invited them to go and live in their farm. And so he went to the farm. And one morning he wake up, you know, he was thinking to himself, I need to act by faith. I need to stand up and start walking because all this prayer, you know, it should work. So he walked, he struggled, he was dragging his feet. Boom, he ended up inside the forest, right beside the farm. And he collapsed, he fell down. He looked up to the sky. He had no energy to pick himself up. He thought to himself, I'm just going to go. And then he thought to himself, if prayer had worked, now this is very controversial now. If prayer had worked, it should work by now because even if 1% of those tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people to pray for me, there'll be 1,000 people praying for me at least. And if each of them offer one minute, one minute, just one minute of prayer on average, there'd have been 1,000 minutes of prayer went to heaven. And here I was still lying straight. So we said, this is what I'm going to do. With the last few ounces of energy I have, the last breath I have, I'm going to exhaust them and spend them in praising God. So if I would die, I would enter into the courts of heaven with praise and worship. In fact, it even lost faith already. But he didn't lose faith in God. Unlike today's narrative, if God didn't answer your prayer, you can curse Him. But this gentleman, he said, in spite of the fact that I can, I can see my prayer answer, I still believe you, God. I'm going to worship you. He said, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to praise Him until I enter into the gates of heaven. So he would spend every breath he had. He said the first few seconds was very difficult. He mustered all the strength he had. It went, praise Lord. And he kept doing it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Within a few minutes, he felt like there was a surge in strength. He said, praise God. Praise God. Before you know it, he realized he was standing. Praise God. And within 30 minutes or an hour, I can't remember, he opened his eyes. He noticed all his family was standing there. The reason was because they could hear from afar how loud he was. He was praising God out loud standing up with all the strength of energy and that was a moment he was completely healed of TB that was a miracle that happened come on let's give praise to God the key is this faith F-A-I-T-H is to believe even though it may not look like it's working some of you have been believing in God to live a right life you try, you try, you try, you fail you try to observe rules, regulation, you know it's not working. You tried everything. You fast, you fast for 20 days, 30 days, 50 days, whatever. It's not working. I'll tell you this. It's not what you can do. It's how much you believe. And this application is the righteousness of God. To have right standing. By faith in everything 
works the same way. To believe, even though it may not look like it's working. Can you? Can I ask you to stand with me this morning?